Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. Last time we saw God make a covenant with Abram. Abram was already saved because he had already believed in God for the righteousness that he could never perform. And that was made explicit in verse 6, though not for the first time. It's just saying even now, eight or nine years in, Abram still, his only righteousness is by faith alone. It's imputed to him because he believes. And that was the point of God subsequently revealing this covenant ceremony to Abram. Abram is asleep. While God alone passes through the pieces, signifying that God would sooner tear himself apart than not be Abram's God, than not be his everlasting inheritance, and therefore, of course, make good on these lesser promises of land and offspring and a great name and etc. And beloved, just like Abram, God accomplishes all of our righteousness. Just like Abram asleep. We get it all entirely free simply by believing in our God as Savior. And there's no other way anybody can be saved. That's why it's so important to reject any teaching that would say the sacraments can give a grace or a righteousness other than what we have by faith in Christ. Like Westminster Catechism 91, it's only as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we by faith in Christ receive the sacraments, then they benefit us. Then they function as a sign to his gospel, a seal of the truth of his gospel. But they don't bring something additional or something outside of that. They point us to Jesus. Or any teaching that says you have to perform some amount, achieve a particular kind, reach a certain level, or do just one act of obedience and God will. Give converting grace, regenerating grace, saving grace, justifying grace to you or to anyone else. Even if it's God will do 99%. But you have to do that 1%. And when you do, God will save. Beloved, whatever they want to call it, if you have to do it, and then God will save in response, that's a system of works righteousness. It's a false gospel, and we need to reject all of that kind of teaching. We need to be like Abram, who believed in a God, who justifies the ungodly, who was asleep when God took upon himself all of the responsibility, all of the work, and assured Abram that he would be his God by a blood oath on himself. All right, so now here we are. Abraham has God's imputed righteousness. He has God's assurance in the covenant of grace. And now he's been told that this promised seed will come from his own body. So he's in the clear now, Abram. Surely he will wait on the Lord. Surely, I mean, there's no way he can mess this up now. Is there? On today's text, we're going to see that even when we believe in a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, even when we understand God's absolute assurance of our salvation by his sovereign power and free grace, we need to be humble. We need to fear because we are still prone to look to our works, to think that we can help God keep his promises. May the Lord establish 
this sermon, this text in our hearts this morning. And may I preach it truthfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is the holy word of Almighty God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and she gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan, So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between You and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, the pride of works righteousness. I want you to notice the pride of works white righteousness. Verse 1 sets the stage. We're introduced to this girl, Hagar, servant girl, probably in her 20s or so, uh, a servant to Sarai and to Abram. We remember Abram had 300, 318 armed men in his house, armed servants, servants he could arm, and therefore he has a lot of servants, he and Sarai both. And they would have been the master and mistress of all these servants. And they would have had to listen to them. And that was their system. That was the system in Israel, at least until the exile. And I don't know how they were treated. They're called slaves in other places. We know the system of slavery America had was monstrous. I do not believe that Abram and Sarai, believers as they were, treated their servants that way. I don't believe it. Because you cannot love God. You cannot love your, yeah, you cannot love God whom you cannot see unless you love your neighbor who you can see. So they had to be just and fair to them. And this is the way life was in their day. They lived in an imperfect system. And so do we. And we ought not to judge them and say, look how bad they were. I imagine we do a lot of bad things too. All I know is I believe Abram and Sarai would have been fair and just and good to their servants. We know they were. Because Abram's men were not abject slaves. They were warriors. They went and fought and took over and conquered four kings and their armies. How free and noble Abram and Sarai's servants must have been. So let's be careful, right, when we look at them and say this was awful. I don't know that it was. I know in many other situations it would have been, certainly in an unbelieving house. But I'll bet you to be a servant in Abram and Sarai's house would have been better to be a servant in anybody else's in that time. And that's all we can hope to be is fair and just in our corrupt system and sins as well. But all I want you to notice here is that Sarai has this Egyptian servant. She probably picked her up, by the way, when they were in Egypt. If you remember back in chapter 12, they went to Egypt because of the famine. And remember, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem with Abram's allowance, obviously. 
And it says, Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him sheep and oxen and donkey, and here it is, and male and female servants. So Abram and Sarai pick up Egyptian men and Egyptian women in Egypt years earlier, and that word female servant is shifcha, the same as maid servant, and the same as maid. Five times in six verses in our text, maid servant, maid, but it's always shifcha in the Hebrew. It's the same word as female servant. So this is a servant. And we're told the problem now in verse two. Sarai said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. All right, that's the problem. And she says the Lord has restrained. Now Sarai is not saying, and scripture is not saying that barrenness is a judgment from God. You can't think that. I get that question sometimes on Hard questions that came in recently, the, one of the TV shows that I do, is my cancer from God? Is God punishing me? No. That is not the way to look at any affliction in your life. If you're a believer, God is not punishing you because Christ took all of your punishment. And if you're not a believer, this is the opportunity God is giving you to consider your sins because something worse than cancer is coming. And you can come to him and believe. So no, you should never see that. And barrenness was not a punishment from God. The godliest women in the Bible were given, and I want to say it this way, this trial, this burden, this test to prove their faith in Christ. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, barren until she was an old woman. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, one of the greatest prophets, barren and ridiculed by a rival wife. And of course... In our text, Sarai, the mother of the faithful. And there were others. Sarai is just acknowledging God is sovereign. You know, if I do have cancer, I have to acknowledge. Well, then God has obviously given me or allowed me or whatever you want. However you want to say it, God is the one who's sovereign. And I have this cancer and that's somehow a part of his plan. And it is for my good and I can live for him still. And we've got to believe that. No matter what trial or tribulation that you're in, your God is over it and he is going to bring you good through it. And if you do suffer in this world, you will get rewards that will more than make up for it in heaven. Martyrdom is not possible unless we believe that. Christ is worth dying for because I will be his forever and he will make up for it. In fact, he will give the martyrs the greatest treasures in heaven. So don't ever believe that that's the case. Sarah believes in God. She's a believer. She understands God is sovereign and somehow, some way, God is over her barrenness and she's just acknowledging that. But she also believes in the promised seed. She would have heard and she would have been right with Abram when all these promises came. She understands all these things. John Calvin says it this way, quote, the mother of the people of God. That's what Calvin calls her. The mother of the people of God was a participator of the same grace with her husband Therefore, Sarai wished to obtain the blessing, which she knew was divinely promised. Just as Abram knows he's, the seed is the promise, says to God, well, Elias, Azer of Damascus, I guess I'm going to have to adopt them because you haven't given me seed, and God corrected him. Sarai knows that the seed's going to come from Abram's body now. That's the new information. And therefore, maybe it needs to be a surrogate. Maybe it needs to be another woman. It's got to be my husband. Maybe that's the way God's going to do it. So there's a sense in which I think you have to understand Sarai is only doing this because she believes God has said 
that there's a seed coming, the, the savior of the world, and it's going to be through your husband's body. But Sarai knows that she's barren. I believe Sarai probably has gone through menopause by this point, or very soon. She knows that she cannot have children, right? And she believes in the promised Lord. And she's been waiting for 10 years, verse 3. They've dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. And this is something that we need to do, beloved. We need to wait on the Lord. Seven times the scriptures exhort us to wait on the Lord. That's why I gave you that in our call to worship. We need to wait on the Lord. Isaiah 28, 16. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Listen to this. Whoever believes will not act hastily. We're not going to rush in and finish what God started because it's going to fall to the ground. It's a sure stone. It's a precious stone. It's a strong foundation stone. We can wait. We don't. I love that in the scripture. Don't act hastily. Oh, I better hurry up. God's promises aren't happening fast enough. It's a sure stone. It's a strong foundation. That's why scripture says wait on the Lord. It's part of our spiritual discipline. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. It's part of our faith to humble ourselves. And to wait upon the Lord. We have to wait upon the Lord. Psalm 37, 34. Wait on the Lord. Keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. Isn't that interesting? Because when Abram conquered much of the land, the whole valley, he didn't take it. Remember, he wouldn't take anything for it. He's not going to get the Lord that way or the land that way. He's going to get the land by waiting on God and God's going to give it to him. And so he passed that test and he waited on the Lord and he gave up all the rewards. He could have taken everything from the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom was his hostage that he rescued. But he gives it all back. He's not going to have the land that way, not by his sword. And so Sarai, a believer in God, thinks that maybe the seed would come this way. And so verse 2, please go into my maid. Perhaps shall I obtain children by her. And you say, wow, why would she possibly say this? Well, this was the common universal practice of that world. We have so many ancient records that say this, that if a wife could not have children, and many of the records, she and she alone could give to her husband, her female servant or slave, as a lower tier wife. And so Sarah is trying to make God's word come to pass. She believes in the promise. seed; it's got to come through Abram. I can't have children. Don't we want the blessing of God? Don't we want the promise to come to pass? The Newsy texts says this, a wife who cannot bear children is to take a wife for her husband from this particular land where they took the, the female concubines, as it were. An Assyrian contract extant says the wife had two years to get pregnant and then only she again could do this. She could acquire for him a maidservant and any of the children from that maidservant would be hers. And then she could sell her or keep her whatever she wishes. The Assyrians were kind of brutal. The Code of Hammurabi is a little more generous to the, to the slave wife. The Code of Hammurabi says that a, a barren wife could give her servant to her husband to bear children. And if that slave wife later would claim equality with the original wife, because she's an abject slave, she's brought to the level of some kind of a wife to the man, 
But if she would claim the equality with the wife who actually is the one who, who allows this to happen, the original wife can reduce her back to the level of abject slave. She goes below slave wife status again. But she couldn't sell her in the code of Habarami. She has to keep her there with her children at least. Again, the Assyrians were brutal. So here's the world's answer to Sarai's barrenness, right? And she's tired of waiting. In fact, she doesn't think it's possible. And that's the sin of pride. That's the pride of works righteousness. I don't believe that God can do it his way. And so I am going to help his promise come to pass. She believes in the word of God. She just believes she needs to help it a little. And this is great pride on Sarai's part. Secondly, I want you to notice the temptation of works righteousness. I want you to notice the temptation of works righteousness. Beloved, to think that we can do something to bring about God's saving promises, to bring about his good. I mean, our intention is to get what what is good, to bring about his blessings that he's promised. Our intention is to get his blessings that he's promised. But to think that I can do something to make that happen. And remember... That's what the seed was. The seed was the ultimate blessing, the salvation of the world. And to think that I can do that, I can do something to make God's promised salvation come. You know, more and more, the doctrine of the Middle Ages taught this kind of thing, that the sinner was given by God in an actual system of grace, they called it grace, certain works to do. And you had to do your part. Martin Luther, at least biographies about him, summarize it in these little ditties. I don't know if they rhyme in German, but this is the way they are in English. And Luther says that this is the way it was in his day. That God gives grace to every man who of himself does what he can. You know, do your part. God will give you grace. This was the system that, that the reformers rejected and the reformation Happened because this became the gospel. This is the other version that comes out. God will require no more of man than of himself perform he can. God says you can do it. or If God commands you to do it, you have to be able to. You see? Because you have to do your part. Do your part and God will give you grace. Not believe in a God who saves unworthy sinners. God's given you some work to do. And if you do your part, you can get your loved one out of purgatory. You could do that by your works. Or you could restore your own soul's justification in the sacrament of penance as you did part of it being your works of satisfaction. All right? Now, this is Sarai's idea. But this idea was approved by the whole world in her day. This was what a barren woman did if she wanted to have children. And offspring was crucial in this agricultural culture. You needed a lot of people because you didn't have tractors. You needed a lot of people to do a lot of work to make your living and you could actually do this and prosper. And Abram and Sarai had at least a thousand people in their household. If they have 318 men who can go to war, how many women and children and older men do they have? So they had like a moving city going around and Bedouins are like this even to this day, some of these large Bedouin tribes. And so this is what they are in and, and, and they're gonna do this thing that the world says is okay. Calvin calls it a corruption of marriage, a perversion of marriage And no light sin on Abram and Sarai's part. It was no light sin according to Calvin. And so if we read verse 2, she says this to Abram. What does he say? And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. No argument. No 
wait a minute. Let's think about this. He immediately says yes. And he does it. Calvin says it wasn't the substance of their faith that was defective, but the method in which they proceeded. Isn't that something? Isn't it always method? Either we're going to legislate a method that we think is the best for everyone, therefore thus saith the Lord, or we're going to adopt a method that the world says is okay. And they're all saying it's okay. And maybe it looks like it's a sin, but I'm sure we can find a way to say it's okay. Maybe it's because we're really trying to obey God, so you know it's not a sin in that case or something like that. But here's the thing. We cannot make God's saving grace come down to us by our human works. We cannot make his promises come to pass by doing something. His saving promises. This is the Savior that's coming. God uses means, absolutely. He uses means. We are always means in our lives, especially our family, means of of grace and salvation. You teach your kids the gospel. We give parents that baptismal vow. And you want to be that means. But means never deserve anything. And means never guarantee anything. If means of grace are a guarantee of grace, then they're no longer means, they're a cause. A, a guarantee of grace is now a cause of grace. And that's works righteousness. And it can never be that. Even according to all the reformers, the most powerful means of grace is the preached word. Maybe not when I'm doing it. But the preached word, it's, it's, it's never the man, it's the Holy Spirit. The proclaimed word, we believe, has the blessing of God to convince and convert souls. More than anything else, even the sacraments are just signs and seals of that. Right? It's the preached word that he's the most powerful means of grace. And yet you cannot guarantee anyone salvation by hearing a sermon, by hearing a hundred sermons, by hearing 10,000 perfect sermons. You can't say you'll be saved. Or God, you didn't save them. They did their part. They were there. The man was preaching. It was your word. No, God is sovereign in the means. We use the place where he says he'll be found. But he moves as he pleases. And we need to remember that. It is also, on the other hand, never God's will for you to sin in order to bring his promise to pass. Calvin calls it reprehensible that Abram agreed to this. Calvin sees this episode also as a great warning to believers. He says this, how easily, listen to this, the father and the mother of the faithful fell into sin. How easily. Don't think you're better than your father and mother in faith. I believe that if it was not for God's grace, I would run back to my sins. I believe that of every sinner. It is God who keeps us by his grace. How could they so clearly pervert God's will for marriage? The two shall become one flesh. Biologically, it's a fact. Nothing else works the way our bodies are designed. Human life only comes that way. Every other relationship is sterile. And even when there's barrenness, the natural tendency to life is is only artificially hindered by some affliction of the husband or of the wife. Their relationship is still fruitful by nature. The others, even when they're in perfect health, they'll never be fruitful. There is no relationship in that sense. How could they do this? How could they add another woman to this marriage? It began with Lamech, the seventh through Cain, the seed of the serpent, corrupting marriage, a murderer, takes a second wife. But by now, the whole world has said it's okay. And so Abram and Sarai have been a little affected by the world, and they're going to do this. 
I remember when gay marriage was being talked about. I remember in the late 90s when they were just talking about civil unions. Do you remember that? And they assured us, we are not talking about marriage. Marriage is a man and a woman. Everybody knows that, you, you conspiracy theorist. We're not going there. We just want equal you know, benefits from our work and we want equal respect and we just want civil unions, that's all. And then it became about marriage once they got civil unions. And it was about a decade-long fight, and every time they took a poll, every time they took a poll, a majority of Americans were against gay marriage. Every single time. You go and look. Even in California. Until it passed. Until the Supreme Court case. And immediately, the next poll, a majority of Americans said it was a good thing. And we think it's important to have godly laws and just laws. It does affect people's morality. Looks like you actually can legislate morality. You can't make it right and wrong, but you can convince people that it is by the right law. That's what happened. With gay, I guarantee you, if this nation would make polygamy legal or polyandry legal, where you can have multiple husbands or wives, I guarantee you a majority of Americans would say it's a good thing within a year. And I guarantee you, Christians and churches would teach it, would defend it, and they would say, look how loving we are. I guarantee it would happen because we follow the world. And Abram and Sarai, the mother, if the mother and the father of the faithful, in Calvin's words, can follow the world, don't think you can. Oh, beloved, we need the grace of God. We need to be humble. We need to run back to the Lord, trust in his grace. There's another way. This is a really insidious thing I think Satan does. It's not just the world. Satan cleverly disguises sin so that we don't think it's sin. One of the great ways he does this is by, by, by hiding it, by removing it a, a level, with, sometimes with another word. You know, in Genesis chapter 22, later in the chapter, I think um, uh, verse 24, the first man in the Bible is said to take a concubine. And guess who it is? Abram's brother, Nahor probably was worshiping the true God along with false God syncretism as Abram's family came out. Maybe he even was a believer. He took a concubine. I can hear him now saying, we're not corrupting marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman, one husband and one wife. That's not my wife. I only have one wife. She's a concubine, don't you see? The Bible doesn't say anything about concubines. Stop accusing me of corrupting marriage. It's a concubine. I have one wife. This is what Satan does, right? It's not works. It's not violating God's word. Medieval church. It's not latria. We're not worshiping the saints. It's dulia. Lower kind of worship. It's not merit, condign merit. It's congruous merit. I see the same thing when teachers say it's not obedience, earning salvation, it's covenantal obedience. It all comes down to the same thing. Do you have to do something to get it? And will God do it when you do your part? Then it's works righteousness. Don't be fooled by a name that removes it, that makes you think, oh, maybe I'm not earning it here. It's the same thing. Is Hagar Abram's wife? Is she sharing his bed? Then she's either his wife or an adulteress. There is no concubine. 
That's absurd. But that's what Satan does. And we, we're fooled by that because we want to hear it. We want whatever it is that it's always a good thing. There's always a good reason for it. And we want it. And so we, oh, wow, yeah, it's congruous merit. I'm not actually earning anything. But you've got to do your works. And the reformers started a reformation over that nonsense. And we can't go back to it. And so thirdly, I want you to notice the fruit of works righteousness. The fruit of works righteousness. So here it comes, verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. You know, they all thought it was going to work great. Have a child. It'll be Sarah's. Everything will be the same, right? And then this happens. Hagar now has contempt for her mistress. This is insubordination and rebellion. She is Hagar's head. Every servant in that house had Abram and Sarai as master mistress. As, if you want to look at it that way, president, vice president of the corporation. Everybody else is under them and they have to listen to them. Doesn't matter what your position are, you're under Abram and Sarai. This slave girl, this servant girl, and I believe she was treated good by Abram and Sarai. And maybe in Egypt, this is all she would have ever been and probably even sold into prostitution. Something that Hagar comes from a word that means uh, concubine but, uh, or uh, uh, extra wife. But whatever the case may be, she looks down. The Hebrew word is cursed. She's cursed in Hagar's eyes. Do you know why? Because up until now, it was a tragedy. Abram and Sarai, these great people who loved the Lord, who helped their neighbors, rescue Lot, saved all these cities, brought back the captives, didn't take anything for themselves. What godly people they are, and they can't have children, and it's a tragedy. Nobody knows why. And then Hagar lies with Abram. She gets pregnant, and now everybody knows whose fault it was. Wasn't Abram's, it's Sarai's. And immediately Hagar despises Sarai because Hagar, Hagar has done a work that Sarai couldn't do. And now Hagar is better than Sarai. The servant is better than her mistress because of her works. This is bringing works righteousness in. This is the fruit of works righteousness. She's looking down on the woman who lifted her up from an abject slave to be wife of of her husband. She now has great status in Abram's camp. She's going to bear the promised seed. What Sarai has done for her and she judges her as less than her. And think of poor Sarai. She thought she could keep her husband and keep her dignity and have the honor of a wife. The world said she could. This is the way to do it. It's easy. She was a fool. She listened to the world. Beloved, whenever we judge one another by our righteousness, by our good works, the fruit is pride, inequality, suspicion, lies, hatred, jealousy, shame, anger, despair. And here's the thing. We never have a reason to do do that in the church. Never. We never have a reason to look down on anybody. We never have a reason to say, I've done something and you didn't and I'm better than you because everything we have is by the grace of God. Do you have any gift? Do you have any fruit of the spirit? Do you have any grace of the spirit in your life? Then you didn't get anything to earn it. And you can't say, my obedience brought me fill in the blank. Because your obedience brings you hell. That's what my obedience brings me. And our best works bring us hell. And that's why there's never room to boast in the church or to condemn others or to look down on others because they don't have this or that work or they can't do this or that. You may be really great at stuff and it's because of God's grace that you are. You may be really disciplined 
And you look at these people, some other people who aren't that disciplined, and you say, I'm better than them. It's only by the grace of God that you have an ounce of discipline in you. Don't ever think that you've given yourself something by which you're better than someone else. But this is what works righteousness does. Hagar looks down on Sarai now because she did something and she thinks she's better. It was the grace of God that allowed her to have that child. And it was the sovereignty of God that was hindering Sarai. Ultimately for her good, as we know, because she's going to have a son. And that's coming. But all of this sin is now in the house of Abram. Oh, what a mess they've made. This is what happens when we turn to works righteousness. They thought they could help God's grace come to pass. Now what happens? Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave you my maid into your embrace. When she saw she had conceived, I became cursed. Same word in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. Sarai's calling down God's judgment on her and her husband. This is what happens when we trust in our works. Think of Sarai. Think of it from her perspective. She has made the most incredible sacrifice that could be asked of a person next to dying. She is going to give her husband's bed to her servant. She's going to share her husband. All for the sake of the promise of God. All for the sake of the seed of salvation. I mean, what a heroic, what a noble, what an incredible sacrifice this woman is is doing. The whole camp of Abram should have been bowing down. Praise you, Sarah. Praise, look what you've done. You've given your husband. Because you can't have a child. This is how much you believe in God. This is what you're willing to give. I'm, uh, can you see this from Sarai's perspective? And now Sarai is looked at as less than a servant. She is furious. And she's in great fear. She may lose everything. Hagar may become the new wife. She doesn't know why she's doing this. She's blaming Abraham. Maybe she thinks he agrees. Maybe she looks at it this way. Abram is my head. He should not have gone along with this. So ultimately it's his fault. And there's a case to be made for that. But it was still her idea. Why is she blaming Abram and running to him and saying this? She's ashamed. She's fearful. She's, she, she doesn't know what to do. She's humiliated. How could she lose more than this? Except that she would actually lose her husband. Calvin says this. If ever any woman was of a meek and gentle spirit, Sarai excelled in that virtue. Therefore, let every one of us be so much more resolved to govern his own passions. For the Lord, the Lord shows us, listen to this, in the, person of the mother, in the person of the mother of the faithful, how vehement is the flame of anger. Anger caused by false accusation, by uh, uh, insubordination through works righteousness. Verse six. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Notice in verse three, Sarai gave her to her, Hagar to Abram as a wife. You see the word wife, gave her to her as a wife. Abram now, some say is according to the code of Hammurabi or similar laws. So it's about this time is reducing Hagar back to a slave because he uses the word maid. She's your maid again. He's, he's taken away her status. Some say that's the case. And I think there is something to that. Some say that Abram is to be uh, praised here because he doesn't rise to this provocation, this, this blaming that Sarah is throwing on him and begin to quarrel with her. Instead, he graciously, gently supports her, 
He does lower Hagar, which is what she was asking, back to the level of mate. Some say that Abram's to be praised. Others say Abram, and this is, this is more where I come down. I'm not saying there isn't some of that, but I, I, just, I see this in the text. Abram has sinned against his wife. Yes, it was her suggestion. The buck stops with him. He sinned against his wife. He sinned with Hagar. He is not allowed to do that, no matter what the world says. And he sinned against God. And now it's blown up in his face. And I think what Abram is doing in verse 6, I think he's saying, I'm Switzerland. You ladies figure this out. She's your maid. I'm hands off. I'm out of this. Drop some mic. I'm, I'm going home. I'm done. I think that's what Abram's doing. It just seems so human to me. They have this plan. It seems so right. It seems so simple. It's, bl- it's a mess. It's all blown up in their face. They didn't trust in God. They weren't willing to wait on him, pridefully thinking. They could make his plan come to pass and even do so by sinning and going against his word. But they didn't mean to sin, did they? No, they didn't. And they still sinned. Oh, we're trying to keep God's word. So it's okay if we corrupt marriage. No, it's not. It's never the motive. Eve's motive was to be like God, the reason she was created. And yet she went against the word of God. This is what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to think you're doing good when you're sinning. He, that's the best kind of temptation. Hey, this is, this, your, your intention is to do right, right? Just break what God said. Just go against his word. That's what he wants. He wants you to go against his word. This is the fruit of works righteousness. Hagar sinfully, pridefully, rebelling, insubordination, contempt. For those she judges less because they can't do what she can do. Sarai, shame, devastation, sorrow, frightened, anger, jealousy, blame shifting. Abram, false neutrality, selfish avoidance, abdication, abandonment, separation. It's the fruit of the flesh. We know about the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Listen to this, which are adultery. We got that. Fornication, got that uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Listen, hatred, we got it. Contentions, oh my, do we have that. Jealousies, yes. Outbursts of wrath, yes. Selfish ambition, looking down on our mistress. Dissensions, on and on. All of this fruit of destruction because our works are gonna help God's promises come to pass. We believe God's just a little slow. You know, Gandalf's comment about wizards is even more appropriate to God. God is never late. God is never early. God acts precisely when he means to. And it's always according to his perfect plan, which is always for our good. That's what waiting on the Lord says. You believe that, number one, God alone can do it. Number two, that he's good. And even if your circumstances seem bad, you're not going to act hastily because you've got a sure foundation. Because you can believe God has promised you eternal life, salvation. He's promised that all things will work for good. So you can believe and you can wait upon the Lord. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the rescue from works righteousness. Notice the rescue from works righteousness. In spite of all this, Hagar is pregnant with a seed that has come from Abram's body. Can you do it? Can you actually help God's plan come to pass? Abram's seed is in Hagar. Okay, it's made a mess. It's cost a lot. But can you do it? 
Will works righteousness speed up? Bring God's blessings down? No. No, that's going to become clear in chapter 17. This is not the seed. It's not the seed. They've done this all for nothing. And now their home life will never be the same again. Not only that, but Hagar flees in verse 6. She runs off. She's not coming back. They have no way of finding her. If the angel of the Lord did not come back, she is taking the seed and she's gone. Now this harshly treated, I just want to say something briefly here. It's just the word humbled. It's a broad word. It can mean a lot of things. Afflicted, humbled, harshly treated. But it just says Sarai humbled her. And many think that it means that Sarai put her back to where she was. The servant that she was, which was no injustice to her. That was was what she would have been her whole life anywhere else. And I think that there's got to be something to that. Because God says through the angel in chapter, uh, in the next couple of verses, verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, return to your mistress. And same word, humble yourself. Submit yourself under her hand. And if it was unjust treatment, God would never have told her to do that. He would have never said to Hagar, go back to Sarai so that she can torture you. God doesn't do that. All right, so I think that here, Sarai is not being, you know, the harshly treated makes it sound like he, she is really going after Hagar. I think she is being restrained. But again, Hagar's puffed up with pride. She is not going back to servant. I am wife, I'm better than Sarai, no way. And so we've got to look at it that way. But they were trying to help God. They were trying to bring about his plan. They were using their abilities and they were going against the word of God. And sin has consequences, beloved. It really does. God forgives you. God will get you through it. God will never leave you or forsake you. I loved what Brandon Wilcox, the candidate, said, who preached last Sunday evening, the the ministerial licentiate. He made a very good distinction that's important for us to make. He said, you're united to Christ by faith and that can never break. That can never change. That can never become slightly less or even more. You are fully united to Christ by faith. If you're converted, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're fully united to Christ by faith. You can't make that change. However, you can lose some of the joy of the fellowship and the nearness of God if you go straying into sin and false doctrine. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can bring God's chastening into your life or you can bring pain and you can bring consequences and sometimes they never go away. You know my past. Now I was living the party lifestyle and enjoying and and getting drunk and chasing girls and all the stuff I did until I was 20 years old and then I had that accident and my friend was killed. I ended up going to jail and all the rest. God converted me through that. On the one hand, I say, thank you, Lord. But on the other hand, I say, if I could do anything to change that, I would. But to this day, there are consequences to that act. I'm a Christian. To this day, I have consequences. I just got in the mail for like the third time in my life, a jury summons. I fill out that form once, I get back an official letter, you cannot be part of a jury. Never, the rest of my life, because of what happened to me. Don't think that because you're a believer, you can't do things that won't affect you, bring loss to you, bring difficulties to you, right? But God will bring you good through it, but it doesn't mean that it's going to feel good, or that you have to, uh, everything's going to be perfect. As believers, we can do that, all right? But the thing here is to, to hold on to is that even if, what we don't want to do is begin to trust in our works, begin to walk in the sin of the world, deceiving ourselves that somehow it's okay, because we can bring this unnecessary hardship and pain into our lives, right? 
we might be intending to obey God, but I was intending to obey. And that's what every sinner does. I'm intending to do some good thing for some good reason. We cannot allow, we cannot seek to get God's promises to come to pass by our own efforts. That's incredible pride, even if we didn't mean it that way. And we can't allow our desire to have God's blessings annul our duty to obey God's word. You hear that? We cannot allow our desire to have God's blessings, but these are good things. Annul our duty to obey God's word. We need to be humble and wait upon the Lord. Abram and Sarai made children more important than their marriage, than the purity of their marriage. Now they had a great excuse. Their child was the savior of the world. There's ever a temptation to make children more important than the chastity and dignity and purity of your marriage. Well, there's a pretty good one. We, none of us had that excuse. And yet many times Christians will idolize children, make children everything, make them come before the marriage. They don't. The husband-wife relationship is the closest relationship in this wife, in this world. It's the only relationship that we are commanded to actually break the parent-child relationship for. The, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's the closest relationship. And we can't make marriage about money or about children or about anything else. Praise God if you have children. But praise God if you don't. You're not better because you have children. I think that's a temptation sometimes. If a godly couple decide that they're not going to do that, that's their business. Protestants have never believed that you can't prayerfully decide to have how many children you want, when you're going to have them. And it's just wrong for us to judge. And no reformed church, no reformed court is ever going to prosecute somebody because a godly couple who say we're not going to have children or somehow they're less. You're blessed if you have children and if you love the Lord and you're married and you decide not to for whatever reasons, Paul says there are reasons where married couples should live as if they're single in circumstances. And you don't know what's going on in someone else's life. But if a married couple says that, that's their business. We don't make children an idol either. But they did that. And the relationships of the three of them are in shambles, even though they never tried to do evil. But the good news is, beloved, that salvation really is by grace alone. And God is going to rescue once again, this entire situation, they're going to have consequences and difficulties, but God is going to rescue his servants. You know, this happened to me at Penn State. When I was at Penn State and, you know, my junior year and I'm in Pinchot Hall, East Halls, room 204. I don't know why I remember that. And these girls came to the room and they were part of the Christian organization. And I was not, I mean, I was a believer in name. I was not a Christian. I would have been 19 or something. And um, they came to the door and they said, oh, we're part of the Lutheran fellowship. We see that you're a Lutheran and, and we want to invite you to come. And they gave me, you know, these door prizes. Of course, I'm talking to them because they're two girls. You know, that was kind of smart of them to do that. I never went to any of the things that they told me about. But they gave me this cup with like candy and, you know, stuff in it for college students. And it was a plastic cup and it said sin. It was, it, it was a quote from Martin Luther. It said sin boldly but rejoice in Christ more boldly still. And I have to tell you, I never really got that. Never really thought, I mean, it just sounded weird. Until really this week, I mean, I understood it theologically, but it, this week it really came home to me when I was thinking about this and what Abram and Sarai did. Do you realize that if you're a believer, you can't stop God 
from saving you. That's what Luther meant. Sin boldly. You're going to sin awfully. You're going to sin terribly. Don't let that make you think God's out to get me now because you're going back to a works righteous mentality if you do that. Whatever you've done, if you're a believer in Christ, you can't stop God from restoring you, from saving you. And God is going to do that. They've been flirting with works righteousness. They've been flirting with worldliness. They've transgressed the word of God for one of the most sanctified institutions of God in the creation, marriage. And yet God is going to restore them. God is going to save them. And God is still going to bring his promise to pass in spite of what they've done. And so, beloved, whatever you've done, if you've been flirting with works righteousness, if you've been breaking the word of God flagrantly, if you've been looking down on others because you think you're better, confess it to God. Go to, don't try harder to not do those things. Confess it to God. Say, Lord, not only have I done that, but it's a lot worse than I think it is. Sin boldly, but rejoice in Christ more boldly. Still confess your sins to God. Humble yourself. Accept your full reconciliation and restoration by Christ alone. Because our God does not desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We want to pay him off. We want to get good enough. He desires mercy. So you go to him as a sinner. Christ didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners because God causes all things to work for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, even, even when we try to help him keep his promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are powerful and you are good. And you, in spite of ourselves, will save every one of your people to the bitter end. And Lord God, we pray that we would humble ourselves before you. That we would confess our sins. That we would never think, oh no, now I've got to become a better person before God accepts me. We are worse than we think we are. And you have saved us. You've called us your children. You have called us your beloved. You are going to shower us with gifts. You are going to sing to us someday. And already by faith, you've begun to do all these things. So help us, Lord God, to humble ourselves, to rejoice in our salvation, and to live more boldly for you. In Jesus' name, amen.